Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, June 29th, we are studying James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. St. James has just told us that there are only two types of wisdom, one from below and one from above, and you cannot follow both. In today's text, he builds upon that theme. There are only two types of friendship, one with God, one with the world. You cannot have both. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Jeremiah Johnson. Pastor Johnson serves at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota. Pastor Johnson, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks. Good to be here. So as we get started this morning, Pastor Johnson, we're, we're here in James 4. We're nearing the end. There's some context we can talk about. The book of James isn't quite like some of Paul's epistles where you have a, a very logical progression from one to the next. It's structured a bit more like wisdom literature that, that maybe sets up a table of contents and then bounces around all throughout those ideas throughout the book. But what context-wise from James or from elsewhere in Scripture should we know going into today's text? Well, first, like you mentioned, uh, there are definitely some uh, overlapping themes between chapter three and chapter four. And so it's it's not exactly a, a complete logical progression, but but the wisdom from from uh, chapter three, you know, it manifests itself, uh, James has said, in peace and gentleness and mercy and impartiality and sincerity, um, whereas the wisdom from the earth, wisdom from below, is characterized by all the opposite things. Um, and so so James is sort of going to build on that um, when, he, when he talks about, like, as you said, friendship, or um, or even you might call it the mind of the world versus the mind of Christ. If we can import a little bit of a Pauline uh, terminology into this, that um, that it's it's very much the world versus the spirit who has been put, placed into us, and so that dichotomy is going to continue on throughout this section. Uh, but it, as it turns out, James is really heavily borrowing from uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and. It, some of them are kind of indirect quotes and some of them are, you know, he's, he's borrowing directly from the, the verbiage. And so it would be uh, good for us to just review a little bit of Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. If you remember, that's from Matthew chapter five through seven. And it starts out with, of course, with that very famous passage that we usually call the Beatitudes. Uh, and it's and it's a series of blessings, you know, blessed are but it's always these very unlikely individuals. So blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are, you know, those who mourn. And that's actually going to come in to our text today. And then uh, Jesus moves on from there, talks a little bit about the paradoxical nature of being a Christian, that we should actually expect persecution and we're blessed for it. And then he goes on to sort of represent uh, all the, the Old Testament law. Um, but in a way where he almost ups the ante on things, you know, he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, you know, you thought that it was just about, you know, you thought the fifth command was just about killing people. It's not, it's also about anger as well. And then he goes on in a more constructive vein into chapter six and talks about alms and fasting and prayer and, uh, and how this is indeed what the Christian life looks like. And so uh, James is going to borrow on all of these things. And so we'll keep on going back when it's appropriate to uh, back to the Sermon on the Mount to, uh, to hear what Jesus originally says about this. And that really helps us understand how James doesn't really deserve the the kind of the classic accusation of being works oriented that he often gets. So yeah, James, James is very much focused on Jesus words for the, the lack of his, he doesn't use the name Jesus all that often. I think it's only in there about twice in the whole book, but his, his words, Jesus words are definitely there in the book of James, particularly from the Sermon on the Mount, as you said, and we're going to encounter that several times here in chapter four. So let's go ahead and look at the text. James four, beginning at verse one. 
what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. That is the text for today, James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Pastor Johnson, as we start into the text, just give us a, a broad picture of those 10 verses. How, how might we structure what James has for us today? Right. Uh, so I think the first couple of verses, like one through three, is really a rather uncomfortable mirror held right up to us. Um, I mean, if we didn't all squirm a little bit when we were hearing that, we maybe should go back and listen again. Um, and in the, the center section, probably verses four and five, uh, James reminds us of something Jesus has actually told us multiple times already, and that is that you can't serve two masters, uh, right? You're either on you know, you're on the side of the world or you're on the side of the spirit. You either serve God or you serve man, or in this case, in many ways, you serve yourself. Um, you know, it sort of is very reminiscent of uh, Luther's bondage of the will, but we could talk about that if we get time later. And then finally, in this last portion, um, probably verses six through 10 or so, um, he has these, these exhortations, but it is, it's fronted with this, this little phrase, but he gives more grace because if you take any of these little exhortations out of context, you know, submit yourself, draw near to God, you know, more than a week, it really starts to sound like, well, here's your laundry list of all the things you ought to do. And don't get me wrong. It, these are indeed things that we ought to do, but it's not merely a matter of performance. Um, you know, this is actually in short, really a call to repentance. That's what this is. And it's the promise of grace as well. So with that first section, then verses one through three, that very uncomfortable mirror, as you said, that part that causes us to squirm, one, one part that maybe makes us wonder though, or maybe doesn't cause us to squirm because we could say, well, I didn't do that. It's in verse two. He says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. Now, now murder, I mean, are these Christians that James is writing to, are they murdering people? I, I haven't killed anyone, Pastor Johnson? How is this making me squirm? <laughs> right, right. The, the classic uh, uh, lesson from confirmation, whenever you say, you shall not murder, and you <laughs> ask all the kids, like, all right, who's kept this commandment? Everybody raises their hands, and then uh, then you got to go through and explain, and then by the time, they all take their hands down. Um, of course, the, the thing that we have to remember, James may not be directly quoting it, but um, we call to mind the words of Jesus in Matthew five near the beginning there of the uh, of the Sermon on the Mount where where Jesus says you know you've heard it said don't murder but I say to you whoever hates his brother has already murdered him and what Jesus reveals quite uncomfortably for us is that even anger even anger actually counts as murder now obviously you know the, the question of course every confirmand asks is that well it's not the same you don't actually end up killing the person well that may be true and so the consequences may be different i think there's there's a legitimate distinction there but in terms of you might say the guilt it's it's really the same i mean it's uh jesus is really impressing upon us that uh you know that that hating our brother or sister is really that serious and especially i mean we have one of the things we have to remember that you reminded us of is that he's not just talking to pagans here. He's talking mm -hmm. to the church. He's talking mm -hmm. to Christians. And, um, you know, and I think in all likelihood, you know, they're probably not taking knives out, stabbing each other, but we should not let that, we should not let ourselves breathe too, uh, too easy of a sigh of relief over that, mm -hmm. that, uh, 
when they are hating and are angry with one another, that actually does indeed count as as murder. So right, yeah. I mean, this is not. You're right. He's he's probably not talking about the physical taking of a life in this context when he talks about murder. But to hear Jesus' own words from the Sermon on the Mount in the background, I think is is exactly what we should do, particularly then with everything that that surrounds it. And James lays out a very familiar progression for us. It's a progression that we've seen elsewhere in the book of James in terms of how sin begins and where it would lead. And here he does that, that progression, particularly with this matter of anger that turns to physical quarrying that would turn into actual murder if they were to let it get that far. But as you said, even if the consequences are different, focusing on that guilt, that's that's where James really, he does make a squirm with this. Right, which is, ex- once again, exactly what Jesus does in his Sermon on the Mount. Um, because what he's really saying is it's the it's the anger in the heart that gives birth to to murder, even if it, you know, even if it's not carried out. Um, you know, it, it, I think our squirming or I think our natural attempts to kind of excuse ourselves from this only really demonstrate how guilty we actually really are. Because, I mean, who of us, you know, has never been angry with anybody in our lives? I mean, I don't think, you know, none of us can raise our hands for that. Uh, and so it's – but I think there's also another issue. So if you don't mind, I'm going to take a little bit of a tangent. Uh, and everybody who, Yeah, everybody who knows me well from my parish, if anybody's listening, of course, they're all going to laugh at this point because that seems to be nothing uh, but what I do during <laughs> Bible studies. Um, I think there's also another question here, especially for Lutherans, um, about – I'm not sure exactly what to call it, but um, – you know, almost almost a kind of fatalism, you might say. Uh, I'm not sure that's the best word for it, but let me describe it. I think sometimes we get pulled into this falsehood where, well, I'm a sinner and there's absolutely nothing I can do about it. So I just don't worry about it. I'll just repent at the end and everything will be fine. And uh, don't get me wrong. There's there's some there's some powerful truth to what I just said, you know, that, that in the end, we do have to acknowledge that we are indeed hopelessly sinners. This is what we confess every Sunday. You know, I'm a poor, miserable sinner. I, it's it's intractable. I mean, you know, I'm not going to, uh, you know, I'm never going to be, be able to rid myself of this. However, just because you can't rid yourself of it doesn't mean we shouldn't be attuned to it, if that makes sense. And so, you know, we don't just throw up our hands and say, well, I'll just you know, I'll just uh, sin. I won't even. I won't even worry about the. Uh, you know, uh, catching any of the of the signs of it, right? And so, you know, we all are going to find ourselves having, let's just say, you might say, the seeds of murder in our own hearts, which are indeed sin. So I don't mean to imply by seeds that they're somehow like lesser sins, mm. but but that even if they don't, we do well by our neighbor. Um for obvious reasons, not to let those seeds grow. And so although we will still always need to be repenting of these things, it's a really good thing if, um, you know, if actually looking into my own heart, I can recognize the, um, you know, the roots of the anger that are kind of bubbling up within me uh, before it gets to the point where, you know, where I'm going across the street to go and, you know, kill my neighbor. Um because that actually has that has important consequences for his family, obviously, mm. or her family, for that matter. Mm. Mm. Um, so I think I think James really prompts us to wrestle with that question, um, where that on the one hand we recognize our, you know, I sh- I'm not even sure if helplessness is the right word, but but the inevitability of our sin and yet on at the exact same time to see that we can actually see, you know, we can sort of catch these things sometimes before they sort of bear full fruit in the worst sort of way. Does that make sense? It does. Just because I'm on this progression at one point doesn't mean that I need to carry it to the end. So the the progression here in James 4, desire, covet, murder, 
well, if I'm, I find myself coveting, or even even we could add in the the quarreling and the fighting as a, another right. step in there. I find myself there. It doesn't mean that I need to go the full way and and actually murder in the sense of physically taking a life. I I, I recognize that sin where it is, and and put it to death in the waters of baptism. To I mean, just right. to think through the way Paul, because we just studied Romans here on Sharper Iron. Think Romans chapter six about being a a slave to God rather than a, a slave to sin, which is a reality He gave you in your baptism, such that you're you're not. And I mean, now to use James's language here in chapter four, that you're not a friend with the world anymore, but you're a friend of God, and that means you you seek to put these passions to death, all the while recognizing right. the Romans seven reality of of yes, I'm a sinner and. The good things that I want to do, I, I don't do those. And the the evil things that I know I shouldn't do, that's what I find myself doing. And and constantly looking to Christ for that forgiveness in whom there is no more condemnation. But but James is is really well, I mean, everything that you said makes sense in terms of what James is saying, because he's he's writing so that the progression doesn't go the full way and hurt the neighbor so that it doesn't turn into the, the physical murdering that it stops at the quarrels and fighting. And even then to go deeper and to examine my thoughts and to look at my own anger, which is where it all starts. I mean, if if we don't look at that, then we'll constantly be treating the symptoms and, Mm -hmm. and never looking at the root cause, which is ultimately the, the new heart that I need and the only Christ can give me. Right. And I think that James is actually going to even bring all that up in six through through 10 eventually, but just in his own sort of idiomatic way. I mean, um, as we were talking about even before we got on air about how uh, we're so programmed to kind of to to read everything in Pauline terminology. um, I think that for at least for me personally, has long been a roadblock to reading James, but to be able to take him sort of on his own terminology and especially to realize, as you pointed out, that what he's just doing is he's um, uh, how would I, uh, he's he's repeating the words of Jesus and sort of fleshing those things out um, that he doesn't have to sound like Paul, but that at the same time you're hearing. Um, you know, sort of the the kernel of the gospel in the broad sense still being articulated. You know, for example, in verse 7 where he says, submit yourselves therefore to God, um, I would actually argue that that is, for all practical purposes, um, if not the equivalent or at least close, like kissing cousins to uh, uh, to putting putting to death what belongs to the body. Mm. Uh, to submit yourselves to God is not this, like, uh, this is not this gold medal action that you're doing on behalf of the Lord. This is in order to subject the uh, the body of sin to death. And so, and, and in the end, and that's that's where he kind of I think pulls it all together with humble yourselves there before the Lord. He will exalt you. We'll get to that eventually. I'm getting a little getting a little bit of the cart before the horse here. Well, that that that's okay. I mean, I think James, the way that he's structured, as you said, invites us to do that. Where whereas with with Paul, we are very used to taking him one verse at a time. It, with James, to to take him as a whole is is very helpful. And even this <clears throat> this progression that we've laid out this matter of desiring and coveting and quarreling leading to murder that, that, I mean, that, that goes back to what he said back in chapter one, where he talked about, and this shows up in the lectionary. So it's, I think a, a text that we're a little more familiar with where, where James writes that each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death, which I think it in that text as James lays it out, he shows the consequences of sin upon me as an individual. And here in chapter four, now he's he's inviting us to reflect upon the consequences of my sin upon my neighbor, that it's not just my sin leads me to death, but look, when I sin against my neighbor, that's me doing the same thing to him, ultimately leading toward toward evil for him. And so that it's not just a, a repenting of, of my sin for my sake, but repenting of my sin so that I don't harm my neighbor either. Right. No, that's a really fine distinction. I actually didn't catch the, uh, the first time through, you know, and it's, um, 
it's a pretty easy thing to imagine. I mean, this is one of the things I really like about James is that it doesn't take a big jump to uh, to imagine yourself in a situation where this is all sort of playing out. Um, you know, we could also go to like when Paul talks about the the situation in in First Corinthians, but um, I mean, just just imagine for yourself. Um, you know, we're, we're both pastors, and so this is a little bit easier for us. But most of you know people who are parishioners can imagine this too. You know, somebody gets a uh, you know a great idea for something in the church. Maybe they want to start a you know a food bank or something like that. You know, a fine thing. Uh, no, no big problem. But, but notice how easily our even our best and most noble ideas end up you know kind of end up getting curved in on themselves and end up sometimes even hurting our neighbor. So. You know, let's just say uh, Joe. You know, for a nice, a nice uh, generic name. You know, Joe wants to make this uh, start up this food bank, and uh, so of course, what does he do? He he naturally kind of gathers uh, certain, you know, support from key people in the congregation, and and uh, he's already trying to brainstorm how to raise funds for this and all that. That that's well and good, but of course, you know, as usual, some people, um, you know, raise questions about it, and uh, you know, and and may may wonder about the feasibility of it and whatnot. And uh, you could easily see how even innocent-sounding questions would get turned into something which is antagonistic, and uh, and all of a sudden, Joe in his mind starts to creep into the us versus them mentality, and so he'll of course take the precautions and he'll he'll talk with his you know the the council president and a couple of key people leaders in the congregation, and uh, and make sure that his you know, his opinion gets, you know, gets heard well. And before you know it, you've got an all out uh, kind of, um, you know, cold war between uh, differing factions of the congregation uh, over this, you know, potential food bank. And somebody leaves the congregation, somebody ends up angry and, and you end up uh, trotting on some people's uh, feet. And you end up starting this thing up, but it's in the midst, you know, it's uh, it's done with all kinds of turmoil and division in the middle of all of it. I mean, you know, it you can change the names and the situations, but you know, there have been a million situations like this in the church, uh, you know, in our day and in times past, too. And um, I guess my, my point with that story, my fictitious story, of course, is that how easily even a good and a noble thing can end up becoming, you know, falling into, you know, passions and desire and coveting and ultimately doing harm by our neighbor. And it just it, it just seems to happen, sadly, so naturally. Mm, right. And so James James calls us then to the beginning of that chain, those passions, those desires that start that progression to examine ourselves at the very start of it, at the at the heart, at the root, to look there in an effort to go back to what we were saying earlier, to to nip this before it even gets started. Are my passions and desires seeking the good of my neighbor? Or are they seeking the good of myself? And, and with that at the start, then Lord willing, we won't go down the full path toward ultimately murder. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So um, yeah. pa- go ahead, Pastor Johnson. Were you going <laughs> to? Oh, I was, I was going to kind of move a little bit into how James uh sort of sees this manifest in their prayers. Sure. So, so we did you did Yeah, we've we've got point? about yeah, we've got about two minutes here before the break. So so get us started talking about this matter of of prayer as James brings it up. Right. When I read it at first, and maybe when when your listeners heard it at first, I thought it seemed to be a bit of a of a departure, but it does make sense. Um and he's almost using it as an example. He says, you know, you desire, but you don't have. And so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain. Uh, you do not have because you do not ask. Now, um, let's just before the break, let's get out of the way what this doesn't mean, because I think taken in isolation, it could easily be, well, I just need to ask the right way and then God will give me whatever I want. That's not really what what he's getting at, you have to read it with verse three. You ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And so we've come again once kind of back full circle to verse one again, where when it starts with our passions, like in the worst sense, you know, sometimes we use passion in a very good sense. Um, but this is in the sense of my, you know, my personal desires and, you know, and that's sort of, you know, driving the whole train that that we start with what I want, and then we expect God to sort of just you know fill in the blanks for me. You know, Lord, I 
I really want a shiny red bike, right? I mean, that's that's a pretty obvious one. But even when it seems pious, we can easily ask for things that are, w- would be good for our neighbor or for our families. Um, but when we do so out of utter selfishness and, uh, you know, it's uh, it's actually a great blessing that the Lord would not cater or pander to that kind of um, that kind of self-centeredness. Mm-hmm. So right, so so there you have what it doesn't mean. We'll pick this back up on the other side of the break. Talk about what what does this look like to pray in the sense that James would have us pray. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFU. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, June 29th, and we are looking at James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10 with Pastor Jeremiah Johnson, who serves at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota. Pastor Johnson, prior to the break, we were looking at what James is saying about prayer here in these first couple of verses of chapter four. He's not teaching us some sort of name it and claim it theology that if you just ask for what you want, you'll get it. It's it's far different from that. Rather, it seems James, again, building on what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, would have us ask for the things— that God desires to give, much like Jesus teaches us in the Lord's Prayer. Keep keep digging into this matter of prayer that James brings up here in chapter 4. Right. So one of the things we need to remember that when Jesus teaches us about prayer, and I think James is echoing here, is that um, our in the process of Jesus teaching us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, he's also um, conforming our desires. And so, you know, it doesn't start with what I want. It starts with what the Lord wants. And in fact, you can even see that very simply in the structure of the Lord's prayer. You notice it's um one of the classic ways to see it divided is in these two sections uh, where, um, uh, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, and then there's the rest of it. Well, you notice about that first half, it's all about God. It's about his name, his will, um, and, um, yeah, his name, his will and his kingdom. And so his, 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 not mine, mine, mine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so by teaching this, uh, Jesus is teaching us that basically God's will comes first. And frankly, that's good for us because James is sort of giving us the flip side of it. Like, Hey, look what happens when your desires come first. It's a mess. <laughs> it's a disaster. I and mean, we all recognize this when it comes to uh, to little kids, and hopefully we recognize it sometimes when it comes to adults. But you know, you know the you know the kid right who who cries for a certain thing. I mean, you know, they uh, I don't know they want to. Uh, I, I still remember um, bumping into a toddler once who really really wanted a lemon. Like uh, I think the mom was like she was making lemonade or something like that. And he really wanted to taste it, and like he just threw a fit about this. And eventually, the mom. Gave and said, fine, fine, go ahead. Here you go. Literally suck on a lemon. I mean, and so the kid does it. Of course, he immediately regrets it. And uh, I mean, that's, that's kind of how we are. We, we often, we think we know what we really need or even want. And as it turns out, it's so much better for us if actually, if the Lord is the one driving our desires, if they all become um, subject to him. And so that's what Jesus is really teaching us in in Matthew chapter 6, that he really teaches us to pray in deference to the Father, recognizing that if if he's our dad, he's going to know better what we need than even I know what we need. And so, yes, Lord, I I actually trust you. And so, like you said earlier, it's definitely – this is definitely a safeguard against kind of the vending machine God where you, you know, put in a cord and you push a button and, you know, out comes whatever you want. Um, 
because it's ultimately dangerous when our desires are sort of running the show. And so the classic example of this, even Jesus himself continues to teach us in the Garden of Gethsemane, because, you know, ironically, even though he knows and acknowledges what the Father's will is, he prays nonetheless. He says, Lord, if it's possible, take this cup from me, but not my will, but thy will be done. Now, I've never fully understood how it is the second person of the Trinity um, can actually pray that, but it's a powerful, powerful example to us at the very least uh, that you know even Jesus himself subjects himself to the Father. And for our own good, so should we. Hmm. So should we. It's right. a blessed thing. Right. Because knowing, knowing that, I mean, just to, and to take it again to the Sermon on the Mount, not just Matthew 6, but 7 as well, where Jesus uses language like, ask and it will, it will be given, seek and right. you will find, right? Which sounds an awful lot like what James is, is riffing off of here in chapter four, but then Jesus gives you, well, what does that mean? Well, it's like that earthly father who knows how to give his son a piece of bread rather than a, a snake. I can't remember the exact, or maybe it was a rock. I can't remember the exact example Jesus used, but you don't even an earthly father who's a sinner knows how to give right. his kids good things. How much more will your father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And how do you know what's good? It's not whatever comes from within, but it is what God has said. The one who already knows what we need before we ask. And so what do we do? We ask him for those things. Not not from our own passions, as James to use James language, not from our desires or from what we think is right according to our will, but rather as as Jesus' own example gives us according to God's will. This is the type of prayer that James is is driving us toward. Now he's doing it with very strong, strong language here. And and I think then as he as he moves forward into verses four and five, as you've laid it out for us, Pastor Johnson. Four and five really form the grounds of all of this. This is the reality that's that is driving everything that James is saying. And he, he puts a very common thing for James to do for wisdom literature, even Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. There are two ways, one or the other, which one are you going to follow? And he does that here with this matter of, he calls it friendship with the world and enmity with God. Take us into verses four and five. Right. I, immediately when I read this, uh, you know, when he says, um, uh, yeah, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, made me think of uh, Jesus' statement that no one can serve two masters. Now, specifically, he's talking about God and mammon there, but this is this is an ongoing theme, not just throughout the mission or throughout um, the uh, Sermon on the Mount, but in the missionary discourse and several other places in Matthew. That what what Jesus is really saying is that um, this is about our undivided allegiance to Him. You know, Matthew chapter ten says, "Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me." Um, but this is not, of course, a different. You know, this is not a new theme for Jesus. I mean, all He's really doing is articulating this truth that that the Lord had had articulated. Um, you know, a hundred thousand times in the Old Testament, you know, the, the classic um, confession of faith in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 6, you know, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone, you know, no. So, no, you don't get to pick between a whole bunch of different gods. And this is often, by the way, the, the often misunderstood passage from the and uh, at the end of Joshua, right? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, right? Well, but what most people forget about is that the alternatives that Joshua sets up in that context aren't alternatives at all. He basically says, well, yeah, you can go ahead and pick whatever God you want. You know, there's the false God of, uh, you know, of the Canaanites and the, and the Hittites and the Amorites and all that. You know, you can go ahead and worship them, but they're nobodies. But as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord, which is um, he's not <laughs> he's not presenting one legitimate alternative amongst many. There is no alternative. That's really the point about all of it. And which really kind of shoots the whole idea of choice in the foot, but that's a conversation for another day. Um, and so so the, the point is, is that what the whole testimony of the scriptures, but especially the words of Jesus, is that when God calls himself a people, he calls them to an exclusive relationship with him. You know, um, or as as we confess in 
uh, the close of the commandments, uh, the Lord our God is a jealous God. I mean, I don't know if you, I remember when I learned that when I was a kid thinking, well, this is really strange. You know, we're all told not to be jealous, but it's in this best possible sense of jealous in the sense that he doesn't want to share us because if he shares us, that means we have multiple gods, which really means we have no God. And uh, there is only one who can be our God. Um, and so this really is, um, you know, whereas I think this could be seen as James being kind of the ultimate killjoy. Like, listen, you can't play both sides of this. Um, he's really saying this for our good. Mm. Because if you try to play both sides, you really end up on your own side, which is on which is not on God's side, which is a bad side to be on. And so, uh, yeah, and then then we lose, which is bad. So, and and I think what what you've done here, and this is where James is is driving. You know, we've been talking about passions and desires that are at the start of this progression. James takes it all the way back to its very start, which is idolatry. This is really a matter of idolatry, and even right. you know, you're talking about that that God desires a, an exclusive relationship with us. Look how James starts this verse four: "You adulterous people." This is this is adultery against God, it's, which is idolatry. That's another common Old Testament picture for idolatry against God is that the people whom he has made his own, his bride, they are chasing after someone else. It, it's a matter of, of adultery in that sense. But idolatry is at, is at the root of this. And it's either you either worship the one true God or some false God, whatever that false God is there. Those are the only two religions to, to put it that way. You can't, you can't have both. And certainly this, this invites reflection upon all of us. Where, where have we become friends with the world? Where have we right. been tempted toward it? And not, I think we, we should say not friends with the world in the sense that, world here as as those ways that wisdom which is opposed to god not not physical things right we're not we're not saying anything bad about the created order or the mm-hmm. what we might call first article gifts those those good things that god gives us according to his role as our creator our body and soul eyes ears and all of our members all those things listed in the first article of the creed it's not we're not saying that to be friends with the world is not to we're not demeaning those things Rather to be friends with the world, this is, I think, the connection we were saying at the very beginning to chapter three, that wisdom that's from below and the way that we might use those things contrary to the purposes God has given. And this is this is something that really does reach into every aspect of our life, an opportunity for us to, to reflect upon where where am I being a friend with the world rather than submitting everything to God to maybe that's maybe thinking forward a bit in James. Right. You know, it, you know, I'm really glad that you connected it with idolatry because that's that is exactly what the adulterous comment is is meant for us to to think about. I think the challenging thing that you're already pointing us to is that it's easy to see in the Old Testament, like, hey, when they set up an Asherah pole, that's clearly idolatry, right? But I think it's much more difficult to see the idolatry in our own lives, to see when we have uh, either people, priorities, things, philosophies that start to really um, sort of, you know, take the driver's seat. And when uh, when the Lord himself starts to take the back seat, then um, when whenever anything is placed as, you know, it has a higher allegiance for us than the Lord, whether it's, uh, you know, where we put end up putting family members in our own hearts, we place them actually above our uh, our devotion to the Lord, or uh, or whether it's, um, you know, our, or politics. I mean, you know, maybe this is a good diagnostic question um, that do we um, – do our politics set the boundaries for our Christianity, or does our Christianity set the boundaries for our politics? I think, uh, I think there's been, frankly, especially amongst a lot of conservative Christians, I think we've uh, we've um, been very tempted to see conservatism as as being you know the main thing, and that Christianity is sort of filed underneath that, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Um, but, uh, but rather, uh, you know, our, 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 we are owned by Christ first 
um, not by the philosophies of this world. Or, you know, or you could take, um, I mean, an easy one is, you know, is our own careers, um, you know, and, and the livelihood which God gives to us. I mean, this is all part, these are, like you said, these are good things. I mean, it's good, it's great to have a job, especially in this economy. Um, I'm grateful. I'm guessing you are too for that. And so these are things that, that are used to uh, to serve our neighbors, serve our family, serve all the people who are around us. And, and yet at the same time, how easily we turn that, you know, that gift, which is really an extension of the gift of daily bread, um, into something which we worship. Mm-hmm. And um, I've always personally found a, a difficult but very telling test um, for anything is to say, um, what am I most afraid of losing right now? Because chances are, if I can answer that question, that is my God. <laughs> right. It's, yeah. No, keep keep going. Sorry. Yeah. No, that, that's all right. You, you can jump in if if you want, but it's uh, I think it's we could we as pastors i think have a have a sort of full-time job in in helping uh our parishioners and for that matter ourselves as well uh on identifying all of the false gods that we've created you know i think it's really so easy to look back in the old testament and say how could they be so dumb i wonder if in a couple hundred years people are going to say exactly the same thing about us mm. you know all the all the non-material things, especially, you know, things uh, that we turned into gods, even thing. And I think, I feel like the, the less material they are, the more abstract they are, the easier it is for them to slip under radar. If I could give just one more quick example. Um, I think our sense of importance is a, uh, can easily be turned into an idol. Uh, I mean, so much of what we do on a day-to-day basis, the way we talk to our neighbors, the way we, uh, uh, you know, when we get in a conversation at work about somebody and somebody brings up something that you know about, one of the natural tendencies we have is to jump in and, and show everybody how smart we are about it, whatever, you know, who, whatever it might be. Um, and, uh, and you ask yourself, well, why is it that, that I would want to do that? Um, is it for the good of my neighbor or is it to prove to my neighbor you know, how smart and clever and important I really am. And I think at that point, you are not real far off from uh, from making your own personal kind of uh, your own reputation and sense of self-worth into a god. I mean, it's it's everywhere. We could do this for every single sharper iron. So I think I may cut it off there, but it's 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 a never-ending diagnostic quest. Mm, right. And, and ultimately, and I think you, if we could just drive it just all the way, is that ultimately the idol that finally this all boils down to is, is me. I'm right. I'm the idol. If nothing else, because I'm the one that's determining right and wrong rather than <laughs> listening to what God has given me to go back to the, the matter of prayer, rather than receiving all that he says as the good that I am to ask for and receive, I tell him, no, I would rather set the standard myself. And I, I end up making myself into an idol in all of these situations, whatever it is that I'm putting my trust in. That's that's where it, it comes down to is that I'm the idol. I become God. And God says, no, this is this is no good for you to to use that example of the, the toddler asking for a lemon. Finally, the, the mom said, OK, here you go. And that toddler got to experience what it was like to suck on a lemon. And, right, and, right. and sometimes that's that's the way that we unfortunately learn these things is is where the Lord lets us have it our way and we get to see just how good our idols are how good of a job we can do at being God and and it doesn't work but thankfully <laughs> thankfully James gives us some gospel he, he gives us the the way out you know I mean like like you were right. saying sometimes James gets a bad rap and he's, he's all law but he's not and and here's one of those examples where we very clearly get some gospel take us into to, he gives more grace he gives more grace Right. And I really think that we have to read seven, eight, and nine, and even 10 for that matter, all sort of under the umbrella of, but he gives more grace. And so I think this is marking the turn where, where James is not just giving us a, uh, you know, a strict lecture to make sure that we, you know, you know, do the right thing and stay on the right course. Um, but, but really he gives, he gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And we, now we might ask, uh, which of course, humility can easily be turned into a matter of pride in and of mm. itself. 
I think we need to understand uh, humble in much the same way that uh, the Jesus talks about, um, you know, the lowly and the, uh, the poor in spirit in in the Beatitudes, that this is not like some kind of virtue that you're, that you're espousing, like, hey, look at how humble I am. I've done such a good job, and God's going to have mercy on me that way. No, in the Beatitudes, the, um, you know, the one who's poor in respect to spirit is essentially the one who is spiritually bankrupt, who doesn't have a leg to stand on. You know, the one who is the meek, you know, we usually think about meek and like, you know, people who kind of like lower their heads and stare down at their toes and or stare down at their shoes and like and say things like, oh, shucks. That's not the meek. The meek are the ones who are basically nobody cares about. The ones who are the, you know, who ultimately are the uh, the ones who everybody else has forgotten about, neglected and cast off. And, um, you know, so the humble here. Don't read that so much like a virtue, but in the sense of the people who are, you know, who know that they've got nothing to offer God. And I think that really then um, illuminates verse seven when he says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Once again, that's not another virtue he's just exhorting to, um, but that he's saying, listen, uh, you can do it your way, right? You can do it the world's way where you're the one in charge and it's your your uh, desires that are you know in the driver's seat versus um, you know being under the Lord's authority. That's, I think, what verse 7 is really getting at. Submit yourselves to God is really to say, well, Lord, listen, I'm <laughs> your God and I'm not, so I better be quiet uh, you know, and actually listen. But then there's kind of this great promise that, of course, harkens back to Jesus' own temptation. Resist the devil— he will flee from you. Um, you know, indicated at Jesus' own baptism, Jesus was the one who first submitted himself, himself to the will of the Father. And then you, and you notice immediately, there's no break, at least in the book of Matthew, um, he's, he goes immediately out into the desert to be tempted by Satan. But at the core of each of his temptations isn't say, is in some ways an element of self-service. And that's what James has been talking about this whole time. You know, you desire, you don't have, and it's talking about the things that we want rather than what the Lord wants. And so he's, he's juxtaposing here, um, you know, Jesus's own uh, example and experience there in the, in the desert where um, instead of serving himself, you know, the needs of his belly, the needs of his trust and the needs of, of authority, um, he submits to the father and the devil flees from him, which if you think about it, is exactly the opposite of what happens in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve. In fact, there was a phrase you said earlier, and I was going to interrupt you, but you were on such a good roll, um, <laughs> that what we, what you see with Adam and Eve is that they, they, uh, they hear what God wanted for them, but they say, no, what I want is better, mm-hmm. right? They think that God is holding out on them. Mm-hmm. And, um, and this, is, this is really where I think no one can serve two masters really comes sort of to, to, uh, to full flower. Um, you know, you can't serve the devil and serve God. And so what's naturally, what's the exhortation that James is going to give us? Well, of course we should resist the devil because to be under God's authority there, therefore we can't also be serving the devil. The two are mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. Even and, it, what, Sorry, just real quick, because we're running sure. short on time. We got about four minutes left here, but even that that picture of Adam and Eve there, of uh, that I think it goes hand in hand. The idea of resisting the devil, he will flee from you, and then right along with it, draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. You see the exact opposite of all of that happening in Genesis chapter three, mm-hmm. where where rather than drawing near to God, they're actually fleeing from God. Rather than resisting the devil, they're they're drawing near to Him, to that that word, to that idolatry, as it turns out. It, sorry, I just like. I did interrupt you that time. <laughs> keep, oh, no worries. Keep taking, keep taking us through this with about four minutes left. Take us through this string that James is using to lead up to, I think, finally, verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Right. And so we have uh, this, in, this encouragement, you might say, um, you know, cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. And you might think to yourself, oh, gosh, how, how could we possibly do, do that? How can I cleanse my own hands? I mean, Jesus himself says that, um, you know, it's not what is uh, what 
comes from the outside that makes a man impure, but what comes from the inside? Well, so how can we possibly cleanse our hands? Well, he kind of answers that in the very next verse. He says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Uh, There's some verbal overlaps there once again with the Beatitudes where he says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Um, And the the point is, is that in all of this, the only thing that can possibly make sense of this, cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, mourn and weep, that any good would possibly come from this is if you actually have Jesus intervening all along. You know, um, the, I think there's also, but perhaps even, before that, we're reminded of John the Baptist's call to all the people, and even Jesus's, you know, repent and believe the good news. That that it begins with actually this mourning and weeping, which is which is in many ways tantamount to repentance. Um, that we would not consider ourselves um <laughs> you know, pure and holy, but that we would lament over our sins and that we would actually weep over them. And I think that's what's all kind of pulled together then finally in humble yourselves. I almost think we should read humble yourselves in verse 10 as repent. Now, I don't think repent exhausts it. And so I think, I think it's more complicated than that, but just as shorthand, humbling yourselves entails repentance before the Lord. And then then he will exalt you, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. I mean, you can almost read, uh, you know, the Beatitudes kind of hand in hand along with that. And it very much reminds me of, and perhaps this is the last place we'll go, Matthew 23, where Jesus has kind of, he's coming to the showdown with the religious leaders, and um, and he's excoriated them um, for their, you know, for their hypocrisy and for their arrogance and uh, let me actually look this up just so I can get exactly right. But in contrast to that, in contrast to, you know, the um, uh, the their sense of self-importance, Jesus says, um, "Listen, um, but you are not to be called rabbi." Um, and no one can call you father on earth because you only have one father. Neither shall you be instructors. And then finally, with verse 11, the greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself would, will be exalted. And I think what James is doing is he's taking that concept, that those words from Jesus, and now he's applying them um, you know, he, he's essentially giving that as the final promise for, you know, for their, their encouragement to actually humble themselves before the Lord, to repent of their sins, you know, to acknowledge this, you know, these evil desires that they have within their own hearts and to kind of like put it all out there for the Lord to actually forgive. Because here's this beautiful promise from the Lord that, that this, this actually will be a perfect reversal. They don't have to make so much of themselves. They don't have to exalt themselves. They can let Jesus himself do it. And so they can be humbled before the Lord. And that's not what their status will be in the end. It will ultimately, who they are and their standing before the Lord will be determined by Jesus, not by, you know, their own self-proclaimed works. Pastor Jeremiah Johnson is the pastor at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota, helping us this morning with James chapter four, verses one through 10. Pastor Johnson, thanks for being our guest today. Thank, Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.